I was starting to attract women who wanted to tell me about the fact that clothes didn't that clothes didn't suit them clothes didn't work for them and there was a common thread coming through that and that common thread was that they'd lost their confidence and their sense identity they're going through a lot of lifestyle changes from menopause to which obviously involves body shape changes as well as hormonal changes um people where they're going through lifestyle changes could be relationship breakdowns um could be bereavement it could be um children leaving home so that whole empty nesting syndrome and all of a sudden their identity is lost and also an awful lot of women who come out of working in a uniformed industry such as the paramedics the police services where they've worn a uniform and that uniform has been their identity they stop wearing the uniform and they've lost their identity the bit that I really love about it is seeing them afterwards and how they walk into a room completely differently because they've got that confidence that empowerment they understand who they are and what their identity is and they're dressing um, accordingly that's Carol Hansen and I'm Brian Falchuk the do a day podcast will you hear from the most inspiring people who have been through hard times overcome them and have turned around to help others with what they've learned I'm your host, Brian Falchuk. I know because I've lived it myself. I've written about it in my book, Do A Day, and that's why I'm bringing you this show. Remember, today's a new day. Go out and do it. Hey, day doers. Welcome to another episode of the Do A Day podcast, where I bring you people who have committed themselves to sharing their story with others so that people in similar situations to what they've gone through Maybe can find some inspiration, some guidance to make it through to the other side. And today, my guest is Carol Hansen, who is a style and wardrobe consultant who helps people express their identity with confidence. She's also very consciously focused on the environmental impact of fashion as she gets deeper and deeper into the fashion world and sees that it is the second largest polluter in the world. She's trying to help raise awareness around how to make that more sustainable and have less of an impact. And it didn't start with a career in fashion or environmental awareness. She was an accountant. She also is someone who battled anorexia through so much of her life. And it really came from a place of an identity crisis, a confidence crisis. And we talk through all of that and the way that it impacted her sense of self and her life throughout her life. Most importantly, we talk about what it took Carol to get on the other side of it, which is not a once and done or a simple fix. It took a very long time, uh, as it does for a lot of people, and that's part of why she does the work that she does. It's not just about having jazzy outfits. It's about the confidence from that and how it can be a part of rebuilding one's sense of self and one's ability to be stronger with themselves and live the way that they were truly meant to live. This episode allows us to explore the work of a style consultant that you may not realize. It's not really about the wardrobes in and of themselves or the material things. It's something much deeper than that. And we go into a lot of different contexts, right? So there's people coming out of cancer or going through cancer treatment, not just coming out of it. And you know, your hair is gone. You feel very different. You're having a different sense of what your life looks like or what it will look like. And you'd be amazed how the way we frame ourselves through our style, through our clothes, can really impact 
not just how we feel on a daily basis or how we look in that moment, but actually what our recovery looks like. This is incredibly important work that Carol has lived firsthand, and that's why she's giving back in that way. So we're going to dig into this episode. It's a really empowering thing. It's worth all of us thinking about is, you know, when you, uh, you hear the phrase like dress for the job you want, not the job you have. Well, part of the reason in that is not just about impressing other people. It's about the impact it starts to have on yourself. And what we're talking about is not the job you wish you had, but the life you want to have. It's part of framing yourself for success, which is something I've talked about for years. So I'm very excited to bring this episode with Carol Hansen to you. Carol Hansen, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's a great pleasure to be on the show, Brian. I've been listening to some episodes of your show, and they just, they're real inspiration. You have some amazing guests on, so I feel really privileged to be part of it. Thank you. I'm, I'm obviously super biased. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it doesn't mean really? I'm wrong, but I would agree. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, you know, it, that's my intention is, you know, for people to feel that in listening to it. And yet I get so much out of it myself. I feel like if no one downloaded but me, I'd still... I still do it. Now, I don't know that any guests would agree to come on at that point, but I certainly would take a lot from it. Um, but thank you for, for joining in and knowing what the intention is and wanting to come on. I, that yeah. means so much to me. So thank you. Yeah. Um, before we dig into your journey and, and what brought you to the today, can you give people that picture of what you work on today and, and what your message is right now? And then we'll, we'll back into how you got there. Absolutely. So my name's Carol Hansen. I'm based here in the UK and I inspire women who have a wardrobe full of clothes but nothing to wear. So I help them to look and feel fabulous every time they get dressed. But I also do it, there's a, there's a side to me that is very conscious about the damage that the fashion industry in particular is doing to the planet. And so um, I'm very conscious about not adding to that and in fact educating my clients and the wider world as well about how to be more sustainable with regard to our wardrobes and our consumption of fashion um yeah i mean that is um that's a really important issue that i think people totally miss um it, it actually is quite huge the ready to wear push of you know buy 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 and use and it, it's disposable really Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and fashion is the um, second biggest pollutant, uh, polluting industry in, in the world. So we can't carry on like this. That's something I don't think people realize. Was that how you got into it or why you got into it? No, not at all. I actually got into um, into personal styling from a less successful business. Hmm. So in 2013, with no experience in fashion, no experience in e-commerce or no experience in marketing, I went out and bought an existing online boutique. How wow. hard it be to run it <laughs> well very as i found out because yeah. obviously there is a real art to getting that stock turn right getting the buying right getting the marketing right to be able to make that business work yeah and so i started marketing the business offline as well as online um so i was putting on events um hosting clothing sh shows parties all kinds of things to uh, raise brand awareness yeah. And in doing that, I was starting to attract women who wanted to tell me about the fact that 
clothes didn't that clothes didn't suit them clothes didn't work for them and there was a common thread coming through that and that common thread was that they'd lost their confidence and their mm. sense identity um i work very much with women who are 40 to 60 so they're going through a lot of lifestyle changes from menopause to which obviously involves body shape changes as well as hormonal changes um people where they're going through lifestyle changes could be relationship breakdowns Mm. um could be bereavement it could be um, children leaving home, so that whole empty nesting syndrome, and all of a sudden their identity is lost. And also an awful lot of women who come out of working in a uniformed industry, such as the um, professional services, uh, sorry, the, the paramedics, the police services, where they've worn a uniform, and that uniform has been their identity. Yeah. They stop wearing the uniform, and they've lost their identity. I, I think this is such a crucial point. So I've done in my coaching work, I've ended up with a lot of people facing retirement. Mm. And some people are confused by that because they're like, well, what do they need career coaching on? I say, well, it's the career of their life. And they suddenly like what has been such a crucial part of their identi- identity for decades yeah. is going away and they have no sense of who they are. And then, I mean, your point, I never thought about it like that is literally down to the way they look every day. Yeah. Is that identity, not just how they introduce themselves at dinner parties? No, it's not. Yeah. It's that, and, and, you know, I mean, if you've ever worked in a profession, but even if you've worked in a in a business where you've had to dress differently for for work, when you no longer have to do that, it, it can be quite a challenge. Yeah. Um, but if you're actually, actually in a uniform and people treat you differently yes. as well. So you and you assume a different identity. Yeah. Well, and, it, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, all I was going to say is that, you know, it's quite a complex area in, in yeah. that sense. And there's, there's, um, there's quite a lot that I delve into in terms of the, the sort of psychology of clothes as well, because, and how clothing makes us feel, yeah. how clothing makes us respond to others, how clothing impacts our behavior and our attitudes yeah. and approach. There's quite a lot invo- involved in it. As you're saying this, something is hitting me with with uh wearing a uniform we we were just talking to my son about a friend of his who goes to a different school now and they have uniforms and we were saying he doesn't have to deal with figuring out what to wear every day his friend was like yeah like i have to wear a tie but i don't have to think about it i just wear the same you know i've got like so many of the same shirts and pants and, and whatever um or trousers for our uk friends so no one thinks i'm just talking he goes to school in his underpants every day um but actually as an adult I feel like that almost breeds a sense of mindlessness around your identity because the uniform is tied to identity and you don't even think about it. It's almost teaching you even further not to know who you are, despite the pride you may feel it. You know, if you're a colonel in the military or something, you obviously have pride for that, but it's almost reinforcing a detachment from who you are underneath. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> See, on the surface, someone could look at what you do and say, oh, she helps people pick out clothes or to have a smart outfit or whatnot. Or, um, it, has, it almost has nothing to do with that. What you're doing yeah. is helping people discover themselves and build their identity back. Correct. Yeah. And I, I get a lot of my clients through um, introduction, personal recommendation, and 
what always the bit that I really love about it is seeing them afterwards mm. and how they walk into a room completely differently. Yeah. Because they've got that confidence, that empowerment. Yeah. They understand who they are and what their identity is and they're dressing um accordingly. Yeah. Well, I think that's interesting is dressing accordingly rather than sort of fake it to make it. Like put yeah. on this suit and you'll suddenly feel better. It's like, well, not if you're still not okay with yourself inside. So it sounds like you take sort of the opposite approach is build the person and then clothe the person that they realize they are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so other than picking up this business and realizing it was harder than you thought it would be with the boutique, yeah. how, what brought you to this point okay, and to understand so the self in all of this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when I left college um, back in um, years ago, um, in the 1980s. Mid-2000s, yeah. No, uh, yeah, yeah, lovely. Thank you very much. 1980. I wanted to get into um, fashion buying then. I'd always had an interest in clothes. Um, but it was um, – I couldn't get onto a training scheme. I was finding it really difficult to find a uh, find a position, and I was also being very – fussy about where I wanted to work as well, yeah. which probably wasn't great for a first job. Yeah, you're probably a normal person in their early 20s, though. Exactly. Yeah, we yeah. want what we want. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I ended up falling into accountancy. Um, it's just like fashion. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, and but but the good thing about accountancy is it's a great basis for whatever you go on and do if you understand the numbers. Mm. Um, but there was there was other stuff going on at the same time. So um, around the time when I was about seventeen, my battle with anorexia um, surfaced, and um, I started to really suffer from an eating disorder. And so the idea of me going out doing what's quite an out there type role as a fashion buyer yeah. wasn't really going to work if I'm now that I look back at it and I yeah. can see that. So doing more of a back office role as an accountant was probably about the, the level that I could cope with um, in many respects because the anorexia affected every aspect of my life, the physical side, yeah. the mental side, my relationships, my ability socially as well. Um, and, and, and you were still in the throes yeah. of it at this point. Yeah. So my eating disorder um, lasted for about 23 years. Oh, wow. And that is a long time. I mean, most people um, are, are well into recovery and, and are recovered by 12 years. So, But a lot of me was also because I didn't seek help. I came through it with very little help. And over here in the UK, um, in the 80s, 90s, even the early noughties, um, there, was, there wasn't an awful lot of help um, out there. And it was kind of, it was more on the, on the physical, physicality side, the physical symptoms that they were dealing with, not on the, um, the emotional side. Because yeah. at the end of the day, an eating disorder isn't about food. No. It's, it's about control. And it's about having feeling that you've lost control in your life. And it's obviously one thing you can control is what you put in your mouth and you eat. And that's really it's about regaining that control because you feel like you're out of control in every other aspect of your life. Mm. Clothes are another place where we can maybe even easier than what we eat. Yeah. Has that has that occurred to you then? In the sense of 
Go on, just explore that no, with so, me. I mean, we can very easily choose what we put on. Yeah. Um, and hiding behind, you know, the the sweats and the sweaters and what or jumpers, yeah. um, versus Absolutely. something more revealing or not, and yeah. Precisely, but and I never did that. I was always out there wanting to be. Um, I was very fashion conscious, mm. and so part of that was also about showing off my figure as well. So there was a control over being the slimmest woman in the room, being um, that person that you know people go, "Wow, look at her," and that was fueling it. Yeah. You know, and it does fuel it. Yeah. So, it, yeah, it's interesting, yeah. but. But the control aspect came from stuff that had gone on in my teenage years that I can now relate back to. Um, because in my teenage years, um, two things happened. My my father, I love, I adored my father. I mean, I was a real daddy's girl. Um, but he didn't reach his full potential at all in his either in his academic career or in his um, in his working life. But he wanted to reach it through me. So mm. he was, I was an only, I was the only daughter uh, or the only child. So he was pushing me quite hard. Mm. Um, but my mother also suffered from um, mental health problems and probably did most of her adult life, in all honesty. And she had a complete mental breakdown just before my 14th birthday. And her present to me um, for my 14th birthday was to take an overdose because she told me it was the best thing that she could do for me and it was the best present she could ever give me. And she survived it? Yeah, she did survive it. Um, and she was then, unfortunately, she was then hospitalized for the best part of a year. So when I was 14, growing up with that and knowing that she tried to take her life just before my birthday, I felt very out of control. Yeah. <laughs> And the message around that, that it's the gift she's giving to you. I mean, it's like both of your parents are putting a lot of their own issues onto you then. Precisely. I can imagine your father, the situation with your mother probably just amplified it because not only did he not reach his potential, he also, the mother of his, his child is also not reaching her potential. So it's even more for you to do. Yeah, I think there was an element of that. I, I, I'm not. I mean, both my parents have um, passed on now, passed away now. And um, I think there was an, definitely an element of that. But I don't think I was particularly conscious of that element at the time, probably because I was dealing yeah. with too many other things. Yeah, and he may not have been either. I mean, has had oh. he? do you think he was aware of what he was putting on you, sort of living, no. living through you? No, yeah. no, I don't think he was. Um, yeah, I, just to give you a prime example, I mean, I... When I started learning French, which you do when you're about 11 years old over here in the UK, and we were just doing some class tests, you know, there weren't even exams or anything like that. And I think I scored something like 97% in, in this first test that we did. And we met um, a friend out in the street and he said, oh, yeah, Carol did quite well. She got 97%, but she's just disappointed she didn't get 100%. <laughs> Carol wasn't actually disappointed. She yeah. was pretty pleased with 97%. But that's but that, how he's telling the story. Yeah, exactly. He was, I imagine he wasn't trying to be funny. No, yeah. he wasn't. But he also wasn't, it wasn't a strict type of pressure. It was yeah. a kind of, I want you to do this. You know, yeah. you, I want you to fulfill your potential. But yeah, of course it was a, uh, uh, it, it was an awful pressure to have on me that I always had had to be striving for more. Yeah. 
How did that play out? I mean, as as you went into the anorexia, and he's obviously a witness to that. Did he was he aware of it? Did it present as that, or did they not really know until it got to a certain point? Well, again, I wasn't having counselling for this. Yeah. Uh, and so, no, to me, this is stuff that I have realized kind of later on in life. Yeah. You know, I I knew that there was there were, there were pressures there, but I didn't identify the exact the exact reasons for it yeah. um, because I was I was dealing with a lot. I was also um, I got married very young. I got married um, a month after my 19th birthday. Oh. Um, and, you know, so my husband was also involved in all of this in terms of, you know, being there with me. Um, it caused a lot of friction in our relationship. Of course, he was worried sick for me. Um, and, but he was there supporting me. Um, but it, it I wasn't conscious of it, you know, dad caused this or mum caused this, mm. you know, that happened much later on as I started kind of putting the pieces of my life jigsaw together, if you like. <laughs> Is that, did you end up feeling that way that your parents caused it? I, I, they had, yeah, not in a blame way, but more in a realization way, if that makes sense. Yeah. Tell me about it. So it's kind of, it's more a gradual, oh, okay, that's why that happened. And it's, this has been while I've been doing some personal development work, if yeah. you like. And kind of, okay, well, now that makes sense as to why I was feeling like that and those pressures that I felt and why I felt like that in terms of, um, you know, the eating and the control I had to have back and so on. It, it, it's weird the way it kind of comes to you, I suppose, mm. and you start realizing it. Yeah, it's almost looking at your situation and validating your response to it in a compassionate yeah. way for yourself, really, and not yes. just, oh, I'm broken and that's why I did this. So, no, it actually was quite hard. Yeah. And you can understand why I might have responded this way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So 23 years of yeah. this, how, yeah. does, how does that continue to affect your life and play out through that process? Well, through that process, it was obviously very much about food and controlling intake of food. It was about, um, you know, I was obsessed with weighing myself every morning when I got up, um, purging myself as well. If I felt I'd eaten too much, there were all the feelings of guilt that went alongside that in terms of eating. Um, and and on top of that, it was an excuse me, there was a, an obsession with exercise as well. Mm. I mean, a real obsession with exercise. You know, I would do, um, I'd go for a run in the morning, then I'd go down the swimming pool and go for a swim. And then um, I'd go out, do a day's work and then do a step aerobic class for an hour in the evening. Mm. And that's, that wasn't just one day a week. That was every day. Yeah. So it's bulimia as well as anorexia then. There's, I mean, I think people don't necessarily realize that, that there's more than one way to purge. It's not just well, through vomiting and excessive absolutely. exercise is definitely that. No, yeah. no, exactly. Uh, and that kind of went on until, not surprisingly, my body said, uh-uh, this is enough. You know, you, you're not listening to the little niggles and pains that come in because it was all cardio type exercise yeah. I was doing. So it was a total imbalance in the way that I was um, treating my body. Um, and finally, my hamstring started really 
um, seizing up to the point where they went into total spasm when I was out on a run um, when we were um, actually abroad in France. Oh, yeah. um, and I was in the middle of this strange town and all of a sudden I stopped and I couldn't walk. And that wow. was one of the most scary feelings in the world. And that's when I started taking it seriously. <laughs> I imagine your French, despite your 97, your French was probably good enough that you could get help and all that and find your way. But wow. Yeah, absolutely. But it, it, but it was also then having to kind of play it down to my husband as well, because otherwise I just knew it was going to cause the most God almighty row. Yeah. Um, and, um, it was at a time when our marriage was quite fragile anyway at that stage because back in 91, I'd been told I couldn't have children mm. um, when we were starting thinking about having a family. Um, and they actually told me that I'd had my menopause in my early 20s. And I had, yeah, I hadn't known about it. But now I can look back again as I've learned more about the menopause. I can look back and say, well, some of those symptoms probably weren't necessarily all to do with the anorexia some of it may well have been to do with the menopause as well as mm. so you know mm. everything in there um and just creating this kind of perfect storm if you like um and in 91 i started my first business um which was in um accountancy so i i set up my own bookkeeping and outsourcing type business for the sme sector um and um, that was at the same time that I've been around the same time I've been told I couldn't have children. And I threw myself into that business because it, it was kind of it was I was in denial. It was yeah. um, I don't need children. I'm a businesswoman. I've got a business to run. <laughs> yeah. And you see that you see people who throw themselves into what they can have. Absolutely. Rather than face what they can't. Yeah. And um but in, in that, I forgot what my husband might be going through and the fact that we weren't having a family. Oh. And um, and that caused some real problems in our marriage. And in fact, in 99, um, we the, the marriage split um, and we bro the marriage broke down. Um, not for long. Um, we got back together and we worked through everything. Uh, it took us about five years. Um, and there were periods that were so bad that neither of us wanted to carry on and then we get back together again but the good news is that um this year we're celebrating 40 years of being together and that second half of marriage thank you yeah. is so much better than the first half ever was because obviously we haven't got all the, the rubbish that was going on in that first half but more than that it's um you know having worked through all of those issues and come out the other side of them um we've got the most fantastic relationship. Hmm. Did you did you actually divorce in that period, or you just separated? So it wasn't separated. a. We just separated. Yeah. yeah. So it wasn't an actual second yeah. marriage. Um, God, I wouldn't want wanted all the costs and hassle of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as an accountant, I can understand that. I <laughs> I've come to know a couple who did get divorced. Um, really unpleasant process, unpleasant relationship. And after a year or so apart, that time apart allowed both of them to work on themselves in the way they needed to. And they're extremely happily married now. Um, very honest, very raw about it all. But that's a big part of their message is how, how did they do that? But I find it, un, you know, so amazing when you can do that. I, I know another couple that um, when I was a kid, a friend of mine's parents got divorced and like 20 years later, 
after oh, wow. he had been married to someone else and she had dated other people. They came back together. Um, I think they were just tired at that point. I don't know that it was. I don't know. Maybe they grew, but yeah, the familiar was maybe maybe better than the yeah, uncle. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. Um, yeah. No, but it, but that's that's beautiful. I mean, to actually work through it because I think a lot of people go into separation. Well, either they don't, they just they don't put any of the work in. They just cut it off, and they think that's easier, and it's not easy at all. Or they go through the process and they just stay nasty and miss an opportunity because there was a reason why you got together. Absolutely. In the first bit. Absolutely. Do, is it in the early menopause? Was there a discussion around the cause of it? Was it tied to the anorexia at all? Or they were never able to, or I don't know whether they were never able to identify it or whether they chose not to identify yeah. it. So they, there was never a whether it was genetic or whether it was um or whether it was the anorexia but of course i've always had that lingering feeling that it was and that i did it to myself yeah. um and yeah but i've come to terms with all of that now yeah. uh, and i've found that having dogs is much better than having kids anyway <laughs> it's it's different and they're both great yeah okay um, that's that is a really good point yeah but- if you said cats well, it depends on the cat. Um, so what, the reason why I was asking, and, and I realize it's, it's, a, it's a hard thing to face, but I'm curious with your husband dealing with that news in 91 and what he went through, and I imagine you were sort of stoic and tough and mm-hmm. I'm this business person and that's fine, we move on, um, yeah. when he's processing something, if he was holding any blame in that. I... I I don't know is the answer to that. But Not what, to create if, a fight for you guys when we get off recording this. but I don't know is the answer to that. But what I will say is that what did come out of it was he'd actually lost his – he was an only child – he's an only child too. And he lost his parents when he was a teenager. So mm. his mum died when he was 16 um, and his dad died um, when he was just um, 17 and a half. Wow, really close together. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so he'd been on his own all that time. And what kind of came out from his side in all of the the trauma and everything we were working through was that he'd never really grieved for his own loss either. And so it helped him and he did have some help with that in actually coming to terms with the fact that, you know, as a teenage boy, um, not really surprisingly, left out there on his own, that um, drink, drugs and rock and roll were were kind of an easier way rather than grieving for your parents at that stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, he buried it all those years. And the, the whole thing of coming out that he couldn't, we couldn't then have children and he couldn't carry on the generation made him realize that there was a lot going on that he hadn't dealt with. Yeah. Right, so we, we have to get into is how did you 23 years on, how did you suddenly, I mean, maybe it wasn't sudden, but how did you get to a place where you could work through it and that you're on the other side of it now? It was, it certainly wasn't sudden. I mean, it's not a light bulb. It's not a switch or whatever. The, having the problem with, um, 
with not being able to exercise or not being able to exercise in the way that I wanted to was a big wake up call to me and the realization that I was really was doing some serious damage to my body if I couldn't even walk because I was you know tearing my muscles apart like that um and that was a kind of a, a a realization that and I I've always been in into food in terms of healthy food. Mm-hmm. So, but it's about restricting that food. And it was a gradual being able to accept that I could eat more and I wasn't going to end up becoming some um, large obese person overnight, which was, you know, the kind of terrifying, irrational yeah. that you have. Yeah. Um, and it was really, really very gradual. So it was kind of coming out of it very gradually. And um, and then in 2008, I got myself, because um, I went through an awful lot of stuff with physical pain and um, and stuff like that. But in 2008, and, and I didn't stop exercising in all that time. I was just restrictive of what I could do. So well, hang on. On the back of this moment in France where you can't yeah. walk. Yeah. You kept exercising, or was there like oh, yeah. a short break and then you're? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So really, really, really obsessed with yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and um, and then in 2008, um, I got myself a personal trainer, and that was a really big moment for me in terms of transition because, and it was someone that I'd known for a number of years, and in fact, he taught me aerobics for a number of years. And I started working with him. And the original plan was it was to help me get back running because I'd had to give up running. Yeah. And, um, and and I'm still working with him now, 12 years later. And um, he's helped to rebalance my whole mental attitude towards exercise. Okay. So he has helped me to get much stronger, to develop my core strength, um, to build up, to have a nice toned body. And as I've had an begun to get a really nice tone body as opposed to what I was doing, which was all about cardio. Yeah. And that's, I've helped to say, okay, actually, I really like this body now. Yeah. I'm actually really proud of this body because it, it looks good. Yeah. And you probably never felt that before, despite no. everything you were doing to keep it small. Yeah. You've got it wrong. I should have yeah. asked, had, did you ever have a struggle with your weight before the anorexia? Um, A little bit, but it was, it was kind of, puppy fat if you like yeah. adolescent type thing but when I was small um I actually had a problem with eating when I was a child but that was to do with tonsils mm. and adenoids and so I really struggled with food up until I had my tonsils removed when I was about six years old mm-hmm. and after and, and of course my parents at that stage was wow she's actually enjoying food so there was a feeding type thing yeah. going on yeah. And I think my mother really did indulge me at that stage because all of a sudden I liked food, which yeah. I hadn't done before. And for a parent to suddenly have a kid actually enjoying food when they've had to really struggle with a child that can't eat properly, you know, that's, that's a big relief off a parent's mind, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And then the floodgates open. But it sounds yeah. like it wasn't – your anorexia wasn't in response to obesity. No, not at all. It, it was puppy fat and it was yeah. kind of – Yes, I was bigger than most of the kids in in the class at the time, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't obese. No, yeah, yeah, no. It really is about this control question. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to go into with, especially. I mean, obviously, with what your father was consciously and subconsciously putting on you, 
with yeah. what you experienced through your mother. Yeah. Take me the when was when was the France incident? Oh, that was 2003. Um right. so, you know, it had been going on for for quite a long while by then. Yeah. And then it was another 5 years and Before then you get I started, the trainer. Yeah, exactly. But I was and and I was seeing so many specialists during that time, but it was all specialists to try and help me get my body back so that I could be doing tons more exercise. Yeah. And, and in fact, I went to see one guy in London and he said, you know what, the only thing you need to do, he said, you don't need any help from me. You just need to stop doing any exercise for three months. And at that point, I said, right, I'm out of here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I wanted to find the specialists that would tell me that I could carry on exercising and they would still make me better. Yeah. I imagine you never found anyone who did that, but you no. just kept on anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So was it, when do you think you started to have the shift in mindset? Was that starting in 2008 with this trainer or I leading think to that? I think on the food side, it was two thousand. It was around 2003 and there was oh. that realization of the, in the sense of what damage I was doing to my body. And then 2008 was the real, you know, the real change with the mindset with having the personal trainer as well. Yeah, definitely. But you never sought any sort of professional help around the anorexia otherwise? I Oh, I did oh, when did. I was when I was first diagnosed with it by oh. my general my by my GP, my doctor, oh. and but that that was in the 1980s, and the um, the approach that was taken over here and pardon me in those days was really well, okay, if you're underweight and we think you're suffering from an eating disorder, then um, we need to get your weight up. Yeah. So there was none of the sort of the, the mental health support at all. And um, they were going to hospitalize me a couple of times when I was underweight. And I always just managed to get enough weight on you know, before I got to the appointment. Yeah. And then, then I slipped back into the old habits again. And in the end, I just I just turned around and told my husband, I'm not going anymore. I'm going to manage this on my own. And he let me um, in that sense, because he kind of he felt out he felt he couldn't control it in that sense and it was my body yeah and you were too strong at it because you knew how to i mean it's all control exertion again is you knew how to control the outcome absolutely yeah. absolutely some people might call him an enabler he probably felt completely helpless yeah and i think yeah. that's that is a really good way of putting it absolutely yeah. not to judge him in that no, not at all. But it, it's but in in all of that to come full circle to what I'm doing now. Yeah. It's, um, you know, seeing how many women suffering from body confidence issues, whether they're overweight, underweight, or the right weight, or have a lovely figure, or just aren't so happy with their figure, um, then it, my story is and coming out the other side of it has enabled me to empathise with clients and they actually you know they relate to the fact that i can say well i understand what you know i never say i'll stand in your shoes yeah um but i can understand when you stand there and say that you don't like what you say see in the mirror yes i get, I get that i really do get that yeah do people ever push back that oh but you had it easy because you were skinny and no. my issue is the opposite yeah because you're not saying it like that no not yeah. at all it's about confidence and it's about, I mean, when I work with clients, I always work with them in a way that we work from a positive standpoint. So 
um if someone says you know i don't like my body i say yeah but you must be able to find we must be able to find something you do like about it even if they can only say oh it's my eyes i like my eyes okay well we'll start with your eyes we'll show you the colors that work that bring out the color of your eyes we'll show you the necklines that work that will make your eyes sparkle the accessories that you can wear that will really draw attention to it we start from position of love. So then we'll work on to the areas that you're not so keen on and show you how to play those down, not to hide them, play yeah. them. Down. Yeah. It's really interesting to me how, when you talk about the industry you wanted to be in and you go through this whole, uh, really, I mean, a crisis of self and self-control and not being able to control what's around you and to, you know, certainly very extreme things you couldn't control as a child. Yeah. Um, that you, at coming through that journey, you actually got to what you wanted to do. So, you know, you weren't, you're not a buyer, but you're um, in the space you wanted to be in. Absolutely. And if you didn't have that journey, I want, I, you know, wonder if you would have been able to do that. I'm not sure I would. Uh, yeah. I, I look at it and go, no, I'm not sure I would. I'm not even sure whether I would still have that desire to do it because I hadn't, in that kind of real way of understanding what that body confidence side of it is all about. Yeah. So yes, I think my journey has a lot to do with it. And I'm a huge believer in things happening for a reason and, and our journeys being kind of part of who we are and who we become. Yeah. If we choose to be open and to accept that. Are there any, Not every- yeah, sir. I, I'm curious if there are specific sort of, um, the concentrations of, of reasons why people would come to you or, you know, I think about, um, I have a friend who, who does what you do for people on the backs of the back of, uh, chemotherapy. Right. So, you know, you know, they don't have their hair anymore. So how do you create, you know, with, whether it's scarves or wigs or nothing and the, the wardrobe to go with that, because that is a moment where your identity, when you look in the mirror does not fit what it was when, you know, confidence is a question your survival is a front and center question for you. Do you see themes where people tend to be stuck or to, to want help? Yeah, there is a theme and that theme is about their identity and not really being sure, um, you know, who they are or, I mean, I work very much with a lot of women I work with are business owners themselves. Mm -hmm. So um, they may have run their own business for, maybe two to three years and when you go through that first two to three two couple of years then you're spending money on the business you're not spending money on yourself yeah. you're getting the business up and running but then you come to that point where actually if i want to raise my business and myself to that next level i've got to start investing in myself as well yeah and part of that investment is about feeling confident about you know charging more, being more visible, um, going out there, getting bigger clients, more clients, all of that kind of thing come into play. Yeah. And, um, and as part of that, then it's about looking at themselves and feeling more confident. And if you feel confident on the inside um, and you know that you look and feel fabulous on the outside, it, well, the, the world's your oyster, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, very true. For, for someone who is feeling that disconnect from an identity standpoint or not sure of their identity or they they're certain they know their identity and it's not good and they don't like it and they don't feel good about it or hope no one else sees it 
what's what's one of the things you tend to you know you would say for someone to start on this journey to find the the strength within themselves it really is um i mean i i used to um, sort of simple exercises that I do with um, with clients and the first of those is to um, work out who it is that you are and you do that by working through a list of words and identifying who you are and you might ask other people to do the same based on what you're wearing so the other mm. people just be doing it based on what you're wearing to see whether there's any correlation on that um, and then um, I get people to also um, work on that. What is their favorite outfit and um, why is it your favorite outfit? So is it the color of the outfit? Is it the style of the outfit? Is it the um, fabric? Is it the way that it fits? Is it the finishes, the accessories? So identify what that really is. And you'll find then that those words that they've picked out are usually the word you can see those words in that outfit, mm. if that makes Sounds sense. Interesting. Yeah. And to kind of use that as a template going forward so that not everything in your wardrobe is a duplicate of that, yeah. but that you use that as a, as a template and you build on that and you think about what those important things are. And it may be simply that people get compliments when they're wearing a particular outfit. That makes them feel good. And that's a really good starting point. For anybody that's feeling a bit lost. Yeah, you know, and reflect on why why they're getting the compliment and why it feels good, more importantly. Exactly. Yeah, what yeah. are they seeking? Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Of course, I'm I'm saying this uh, having just grabbed a T-shirt and throwing it on. Not that anyone's going to see the video, but I am, I'm certainly feeling conscious of what I happen to be wearing at the moment. Um, <laughs> but no, yeah, no self-judgment. No I'm comfortable. No. Yeah, no <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um the joys of working from one's basement, right? Absolutely. Um this is uh this is really valu- valuable, Carol, and I think you know, for me I think a big piece of anyone who's giving advice like this is how you've come through some analogous journey yourself. And yeah. it's not to say you cannot take advice or take inspiration from someone who's experienced something totally different from you or nothing like yours. But there is something about having had that shared challenge struggle, A, to inspire us that, look, you can come through it, and B, to know when the person says it, it comes from that genuine place. Um, So I I commend and applaud you for talking about what you've been through, because it is is really tough, Um, and there is a lot to it. So thank you for sharing all that. No problem whatsoever. Where can people learn more about your work and... um, I suppose everything's local to where you are is that you're not doing virtual, uh, virtual services, but. I like that term.
Right. So I do work virtually. I have the four week program called Minimum Wardrobe, Maximum Style. And that basically takes um, people from wardrobe overwhelm to wardrobe nirvana. And um, so I help them to discover their identity. We do that. And then we go through a wardrobe declutter. Um, and then we build a minimum wardrobe from what's left. So some people call it a capsule wardrobe. I don't like the term capsule because it feels too confined. Mm. But effectively, it's making best use of your wardrobe. Yeah. Um, and then um, I teach people how to get rid of clothes responsibly because there's an awful lot of um, misunderstanding about getting rid of clothes um, and how we can just donate to a thrift store and somebody's going to benefit from it. Well, it doesn't quite work like that. Um, and then about if you are acquiring new clothes, how to do that consciously and how to do that sustainably and ethically as well. So that's all in a four-week program. Can I ask you an expert question with what you just said? Because I've been really curious about something. My town uh, passed around these pink bags for clothing recycling. Mm -hmm. And we looked at it and said, well, we always donate, you know, our secondhand kind of hand-me-down type things or when our son has yeah. outgrown them. Yeah. And so the, the comments you just made were like, well, maybe I can get an answer as to why this versus that. So what what is the responsible way to retire parts of your wardrobe? Okay, well, let, let me... Let me tell you, first of all, what happens if you donate to um, you guys call them thrift stores in the US and we call them charity stores over here in the UK um, is around 10 to 30 percent of any of all the stuff that is donated to those stores actually gets sold through the stores. And the, that leaves between um, 70 and 90 percent which is not. And so the charity still benefits that is hosting the or running the thrift store um, because they sell that stock on to effectively a wholesaler or a jobbing type company that then buy that and they ship that stock overseas. And the UK and the US are the two biggest um, countries in terms of the amount, the volume of stuff that we ship overseas. Mm. That ends up in places like East Africa mm. and sold on secondhand markets out in, in those countries. Now, the the local communities actually quite love it in some senses because it means they're getting Western clothes at prices they can afford. Yeah. Downside is it's destroying local industries. So where you may have local producers, um, local artisans, all this kind of thing, they're priced out of the market um, because they cannot compete with this cheap, fast fashion, if you like, that's yeah. coming from the West. And so what I always advise with people in the first instance is to look for um, charities where they can benefit the end user directly. So um, over here, we have a number of homeless charities um, where you know that the people are going to get the clothes directly who really need them. Yeah. Um, it, and also over here, some fire services, local fire services may call out at times. They're not going to be taking donations all the time, but yeah. they will call out at times. If everybody's lost everything, yeah. then it's a way of helping them to start. So what I would say is there's nothing wrong in donating to thrift stores, but just be aware that it isn't the best way of doing it. Yeah. What I am saying is um, that at least consider what else might be available in your area, and that will take a little bit of research. Now, if it's textiles that are not in great quality, maybe they're worn through, stuff like that, then very often those 
um, elements or those clothes are then turned into stuff like mattress fillings and all kinds of stuff. So they are being repurposed in that sense. Yeah. Um, but what is always careful, what we should always always be careful not to do is donate to anywhere where there's a load of stuff is going to end up in landfill yeah. uh, or incinerated. Yeah. Wow. There's I had no idea about you know this sort of transported to Africa or wherever. Um, the other side of that is the environmental impact of transporting it like that. Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm sure so there, it's not being done in Teslas or you know <laughs> solar powered, wind powered. But yeah, they're not they're not on sailboats. No. Uh, yeah. Wow. Exactly. Okay. Ah, you just opened my eyes to something I wasn't aware of, and I get now why um, why we have these recycling bags then, because the alternative is, you know, my son's got a pair of pajamas that the the pants are worn through yeah. on the knees. I don't know how he sits like that. He sits on his knees, but they've worn through and yeah, people would just throw that out because you're not going to donate it, but there's the material could be used for something else or some of the fibers don't break down, you know, Western uh, clothes of polyester and whatnot. You're fleece. absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's plastic. Well, precisely. And I mean, there is some investment going into that now in order to break stuff down, but there, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Because when you break down a mixed um, a mixed fabric item of clothing, it has to be broken down into its original component parts. Yeah. And A, it loses some strength in that. It loses length of fibers and it's costly to do. So yeah. it's that versus start with virgin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, thank you for, I know, sort of a side a side point, but something you care <laughs> very about. And, a yeah. very important point. Well, hopefully yeah. people were educated. I certainly... I see some different choices we could make in our donations for sure. Um, not that I was doing it wrong. I'm asking for a friend, but if I was, it'd be good to know. Um, no, I appreciate that. Um, Carol, thank you so much for joining me. I, I really do. Um, I think your story is really powerful and, um, like so many of the people on, unfortunately it's a more common story, uh, that, I think people may not be ready to admit that it's common for them, but is out there. And, and a lot of people do struggle. Yeah. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. It comes from their identity and their, um, their confidence more so than just, Oh gosh, I don't know what's in the closet right now. And yeah. Does it fit right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, are you ready to help me close the show? Oh, I am indeed. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> Today's a new day. Go out and do it. Excellent. Thank you so much, Carol. No problem. Oh, I hope that that gave you a very different perspective on the depth of the work that Carol does. It's not something I fully appreciated, and now I kind of wonder how I didn't appreciate it, but it's okay. I'm not going to dwell in that. I'm going to learn and grow and recognize the importance of it now because it, it certainly fits. Uh, there's so much wrapped into our confidence and our conscious sense of self in how we dress and how we present ourselves, not just to the world, but to ourselves as well. Definitely visit carolhanson.com for more on her work, and you can get to her social media there. I will link to everything in the show notes. She's got Conscious Wardrobe Stylist at Facebook, underscore Carol underscore Hanson at Instagram, and at Carol Ann Hanson on Twitter. You can follow all of those places. And she, of course, has some great photos of some of the style. and. It's not just, you know, someone posing in an outfit. You see the energy in the photos. Um, Carol herself 
is in a number of them and just has this positive strength about her. It's so awesome to see. And, and you hear it coming out in the interview. Absolutely. Um, so I do encourage you to check all that out and to think about the environmental impact. You know, we got into that a little bit around the recycling and the donation side. My mind was blown. I had no idea about these things. You know, my ignorance on the subject. Um, I'm very thankful that Carol knows as much as she does because I definitely needed to understand more of that. I mean, there's a whole, oh, just a whole side to it. I, I really had no appreciation for. Um, so check Carol out. Um, you know, do come back next week. Got another amazing guest lined up. Make sure you're subscribed to the show if you're not. I don't care what platform you listen to podcasts on. Whatever it is, you can subscribe right there in that platform, whether it's Spotify or Stitcher or Pandora or what else? Uh, obviously, Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play Podcasts, or maybe it's just called Google Podcasts. I don't even know. Um, or just the RSS feed if that's your jam. Whatever it is, it's out there on every platform. You can check it out and uh, subscribe and make sure you never miss an episode. And if you haven't subscribed and you go to, Definitely easy to do that. And while you're there, you might as well leave a review. If this episode or any of the others is hitting you, share that sentiment with the world. And you can also follow me on social media and share what you're seeing there because I put out a lot of content on the regular, whether it's things I've written, shows that I've released from Do A Day, or appearances I've done to talk about issues like the ones that you hear on this show from my own experience and from the things that I've gotten into coaching or talking to other people. I'm out there a lot, and hopefully some of what I'm putting out there resonates with you. So whatever channel you prefer, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or LinkedIn, I'm there, at Brian Falchuk. You can find me and follow and share what you're seeing. All right, thank you everyone for joining me again this week and for hearing Carol's uh, viewpoints, her perspective, her story. It's unique. It's not one we've had on before, so I was really excited to bring that out. And I can't wait for you to come back next week and do another day with me. So let's go out and do it. Thanks, everyone.